0: Y'all watched Andy Griffith's show when Barney falls asleep in the sermon? And he has no idea what it was about. But Andy asked him what the sermon was about, and he said, sin. Right. You know, that's 99% of the time. You know We will touch on that as preachers, correct? old Barney, they don't make them like that anymore, do they? For sure. All right, one uh, principle, of course, or theological principle that... You have to think about when it comes to systematic theology or an understanding of why we need redemption to begin with. In other words, if you don't truly understand sin, then you won't ever understand the doctrine of salvation accurately. So we want to talk about the doctrine of sin. Now, my goal is to get you into a discussion eventually of original sin, which is Vitally important for uh, our theology. So, I'm going to get there, but not tonight. Uh, Tonight, I just want to simply begin uh, our discussion with biblical foundations (coughs) of the doctrine of sin. And so, this will be our goal. (coughs) Now, for the last 200 years, uh, sin has actually become uh, problematic (coughs) among even Christians. And that's a sad thing. The Bible is very serious about sin. We know that. We, we saw that in the life of Daniel this morning concerning his prayer. And it, so in the 20th century, we've, uh, we've got ample evidence of the reality of sin like never before in the history of the world, right? We, if you're a believer, you see uh, the horrible... Uh, seriousness and ramifications of sin all around us all the time. One reason, I think, for this shift away from the serious understanding of sin is how humans have viewed human nature. So from seeing humans as basically sinful and depraved, we now see humans as basically good. Folks, that's a huge problem, right? Right? Uh, in order for us to adequately understand the seriousness of sin, if we say that humans are basically good, then obviously we uh, are in trouble because we're in in contradiction to the Bible and we're not going to actually see the need for a Savior. What drove Martin Luther in his search for the gracious God was a sense of his own sinfulness, his unworthiness. So... He felt that keenly in the depths of his soul as he was preparing to teach the book of Romans as a Catholic professor. (laughs) It was the book of Romans that actually helped him see the magnitude of his sin. And he actually trusted Christ and became a Christian. It was because of the fact that he didn't feel like he had been forgiven. He didn't understand the righteousness of God. He had climbed the confessional stairs so many times that his knees felt calloused. As a matter of fact, the priest said, Luther, go out and commit a real sin before you come back and confess it. Why did he do that? Because he felt the weight uh, of guilt, the weight of his sin. So if we add to all that the more recent deterministic views of humans, and what does that mean? Well, folks, you're just a product of your environment. That's what the Lord wants you to believe. Uh, or you are simply a product of your family. Or psychological drives that you have and if all of those things are taken in consideration and the Bible is not then sin becomes an impossibility for sin assumes that one is responsible for one's actions but if it's everybody else's fault then guess what you're not responsible for your own actions as one psychiatrist who saw the problems caused with a psychology of explaining away sin he ends up writing a book More than 35 years ago, and the name of the book was Whatever Became of Sin. You ever seen that book before? And that's been 35 years ago, and now let's look at... No, actually, it's been almost over 40 years ago that that book was written. So the result of these and other forces is a culture in which morality is viewed as radically relative. We see this every single day we turn on the TV... That if there's no basis for sin, uh, and everything is radically relative. There is no sin. Rather, we say, you may live differently than I do. You may make decisions that I personally cannot support with my convictions, but I cannot say that you are sinning. Perhaps that's right for you. That's kind of the way it is in our society and in the world. At any rate, the supreme duty... In interpersonal relationships, the way our world puts it out there, is to be tolerant. So even words like, let me admonish you, or let me rebuke you, or let me warn you, those things are actually prominent in the Bible, but there's an absence of this from our culture and our lives. As a matter of fact, if you say to someone that they are wrong, you are viewed as tasteless, rude, and arrogant. That's the context of which we live. So how do we, as the church, affirm something called the doctrine of sin in such a way that is faithful to the Scriptures, knowing that our contemporary uh, society is going to rebuke any task at calling sin what it is? Well, the first thing I would like to say, and this is by way of all introduction, if we don't finish the outline, don't sweat it. We've got lots of Sunday nights, Lord willing, And we're going to take our time now that we're in the doctrine of sin and leading up to the doctrine of Christ and salvation because it's very important. So first, our understanding of sin uh, is inextricably linked with our understanding of God. That's why this is important. Because sin is primarily against God and His law, right? Which is a reflection of His own holy nature. David said said in Psalm 51, verse 4, that he had sinned against who? God. And then he adds, and God only have I sinned against. So, his sin certainly touched who? Bathsheba, her husband, poor guy, right? And many others. But it was a sin only because it was against God. So, without God, there can be illegal acts, but there can actually be no sinful acts, for God is the standard of how we measure what sin is. So, He alone, God alone, is the standard that makes sin, sin. Okay? Now, we also must admit uh, we must maintain a robust doctrine of sin. Uh, because sin, again, this is so important, relates directly to our understanding of salvation. We say Christ died for our sins. That's in the Bible, right? 1 Corinthians 15. We're reminded that Christ died for our sins. But what exactly does that mean? Have you ever stopped to consider that? What is sin? And why did Christ have to die for it? I mean, that's the big deal isn't it? Uh, The Son of God condescended from heaven to this earth and lived a perfect life, 33 and one-half years in that body, took that perfect body to the tree of Calvary, and died for our sins. So we should stop long enough to say, well, uh, what exactly does that mean? What is sin, and why did Christ have to die for it? So the problem with much contemporary preaching is that we are offering a forgiveness to people who do not need, who do not feel a need for forgiveness. This is happening every single day, every single Sunday across the world. Nat and I discussed coming to church how awesome it was to hear the songs that we heard today. And we thought to ourselves, how how does God view worship coming from his people? And and you, you have to stop and think about all the dog and pony shows that are going on all over the world. And so many songs about what God does for me. And how it's about me. And, we, and we, you, you just have to think about the ramifications of that. And, and it's so true. When, when everything is about us, then do we truly ever get to the point to, whether, to where we need forgiveness if we're okay. Right? If we're okay, then we don't need. Jesus said this. The righteous do not need a physician. I admit, I'm sick. Right? And Jesus reminded us of that. So... If you feel little guilt and believe that, for the most part, you are already acceptable to God, as you are, then there's no need to seek genuine God-granted forgiveness. So sin is also linked to our understanding of ministry. It's inextricably linked to our understanding of God. It is, uh, we must have a robust doctrine of sin because of our society, but also ministry. If your greatest need is the need of humanity, or the greatest need of humanity is economic, then uh, I think the social ministries ought to be first and foremost at our church. If uh, the key problem is education and technology, then we should plant some schools. But if the root problem is sin and the sin problem, and nothing but the gospel of Jesus Christ will help it, and sin is the key prerequisite therefore to understanding the gospel then we better preach the bible right we need to preach the bible because the gospel is the only remedy for our sin problem okay that's my introduction y'all got all, you got it okay we're going to test mr bill was actually saying back there that we're going to have a test on the doctrine of sin and don't be like barney right of course if you do say we talked about sin then you'll get it right tonight Okay, biblical foundations. So I'm inside of your outline. The doctrine of sin, man and his sin problem, biblical foundations. Well, first, Genesis 3 and the origin of sin. Don't you wish that we knew a little bit more about the origin of the sin of Satan and his demons? Now, we know uh, those questions have been asked since we're using the AIG Material and we're teaching that at our church. That's kind of popped up. We'd certainly like to know more of it about their dismissal from heaven, uh, but we we do realize this that when God made Lucifer, when He made the angels, uh, and even when He made Adam and Eve originally, there was something that would lie in God's choice to make them free creatures. Capable of communion with God. The corollary of this freedom is the possibility of misusing that liberty for their eternal detriment. So the gift of liberty was a terrifying weight, even for the enemy. Well, at first for Lucifer, and I would argue the greatest being that God ever created before his fall, correct? We talked about that. But what a weight. Uh, They could choose hell. They could choose destruction and separation from God and all that was good. So to be a human being is an awesome responsibility in the beginning when God made Adam and Eve and even the angelic beings and even Lucifer, right? Uh, They had a frightful gift and they had a responsibility before the Lord. Now I will argue and share with you down the line when we talk about original sin that there is a massive eternal gulf between the way Adam and Eve responded to sin versus the way you respond to sin. That's called, Luther wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. I would submit to you that you're broken even in your will. Okay? And the Bible tells us that clearly in the New Testament. So, there, there, there's not a one-for-one one correspondence with Adam and Eve dealing with sin and the way you deal with sin. Or your nature that's bent towards sin. You're not created in the beginning like the way Adam and Eve were created. Y'all understand that, right? Nor Lucifer, nor angels. So, we have to agree that there's some kind of liberty uh, into the factor of the origin of sin. Something that God created them to have. And so, still though, there's no explanation for the origin of sin if you think about it. For sin is deeply and profoundly inexplicable and irrational that someone would want to rebel against the God of eternity. You know, that's just inextricably irrational to think about that. To me it is. Maybe it's not to you, uh, but it is. That it should ever come to be is an enigma and a mystery for all of us. However, although we can't fully explain the origin of sin in regard to Satan and uh, demons... We do know about ourselves. Amen? And where is that found? Well, the event of the fall. There have been men, so we're at number one on your outline. Y'all see that? Okay. Number one under A is the event of the fall. I want to ask you a question. Is that history? Or is that just mere figurative language for a symbol? Well, you do know and realize that Many, many liberal scholars in this world say that that's nothing more than uh, a symbol. Maybe a symbol behind a reality, but nothing more. So, is it something that happened to a real Adam and Eve, or is it something that happens to every person? Natalie and I encountered this shortly after, uh, well, I guess it was around 2014, maybe. We had a... Uh, well, it's a close friend of Timothy named Matthew Brazzolatto, and he he was a Catholic. Don't play this sermon anywhere outside the church. Okay. Anyway, but here was his here was his deal. He went off to a Catholic school, and before he went off to Spring Hill in Mobile, Alabama, he believed that Adam and Eve were literal people. But after he went off down there, he came back and said, "Well, they were not real people at all." And so, but, but trust me, this is. Uh, all over the world, uh, of people who actually claim to be Christian, they would deny that Adam was actually a historical figure. So, though mainline liberal and most neo-orthodox theology has argued for a symbolic interpretation, uh, we have some strong arguments that this is the real deal, right? I don't have to tell you this because you believe it, but let me remind you of a couple of things. First, the Bible itself indicates that the fall is a historic event. This is what happened. Genesis 4 clearly connects Adam with the stream of history, so to argue that Adam was not a real person is a and was a historic individual, but that the Adam of chapter 3 is symbolic, that's bad exegesis, right? <laughs> to get to see the the, the proge, progeny or progeny of Adam, posterity, posterity, all that in chapter 4, as it goes through history, but then to turn around and say, well, the, the Adam of chapter 3 just was symbol a symbol, is bad exegesis. Moreover, the number one passage in all the Bible for the doctrine of sin is found in Romans 5, verse 12. So, if and, and Paul says in that text that by one man's sin, Adam's sin entered into this world. We're going to unpack that soon, because that's very important for your understanding of sin. But we're not going to do that tonight. Okay? So, also in 1 Timothy 2.14. When it says, Therefore I permit not a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Why? Because Adam was formed first. And Eve sinned first and was deceived. But Adam sinned willfully. So, You know, there's a lot that goes on to that argument, of course, with the role of man and woman. That's not our goal. But the goal is to say that Paul recognized that Adam was actually a historic figure who lived. Okay? So the Bible itself indicates that the fall is a historic event. Second, there is a theological problem if there is no historic fall. Clearly, humans today are sinful. Now, don't start talking about the husband you live with or your wife, but I'm just telling you now, you're a sinner. Right? All of us. So, clearly humans today are sinful. They emerge from the womb fully equipped (laughs) to go for every action as soon as they are capable of moral action. So it does not need to be taught. You don't have to teach that two-year-old. If they're holding that marker and they've been writing on the wall, and you say, did you do that? They can hold the marker right up against the wall and say, no, I didn't. You don't have to teach a child to do that. Yet, Scripture affirms that God created humans originally in a good state. The Bible says that God looked at his creation and said, It is, as a matter of fact, after humans, I think the text says, Philip, right, it is very good in that state before sin. But there has been a, a historic fall. Either God created us sinful, or there has been a fall. Without Genesis 3 and the fall, the rest of the Bible and all of our experience makes absolutely no sense. Third, the affirmation of a historic fall has been the overwhelming position of the church down through the ages. While we do not put the support of history, now some people do, some people take traditions of church fathers and history above the scripture. That will be to your own peril. Okay. We take the Bible, sola scriptura, over the Scripture. We take the Scripture alone as the only source of authority for life and practice. So, however, history is important. And when you study theology, you certainly want to study biblical theology, systematic theology, but also historical theology. Why? Because the way theology processed through history is important for us to study. We see what people believed and why. So we affirm that Genesis 3... Why don't I just say that and cut to the chase, right? We affirm that Genesis 3 relates to the occurrence of a fall that happened in a moment in time. As a matter of fact, the aorist tense verb in Romans 5 shows that. Through that moment in time, Adam sinned. And thus, we'll talk about that later, as a federal federal headship or representation of all mankind... We, therefore, are in that lot as being a sinner. So, I, am, uh, I believe it is important and necessary to affirm the reality of the historic nature of the fall for those reasons that we've given above. Now, I believe, of course, that Genesis 3 is the inspired account given by God. Uh, and it is certainly the only way and best way to communicate the reality of a fall that has taken place. And even with the parameters of looking at the Bible, we see creation, fall, right? Redemption, consummation. You can even look at the Bible with those four. If there's no sin, no fall, then there's no need for redemption. Correct? Okay. Now. That was, looking at your outline, the event of the fall. Now, let's talk about the serpent. Bad dude, right? How can an animal speak? And why would it want to deceive Adam and Eve? It is only in the New Testament that we are told clearly that the serpent was the instrument of Satan. Revelation chapter 12, verse 19. We learned the titles of Satan last week, right? He is deceptive, to say the least. That's one of his characteristics given in Revelation 20, verse 3. In some manner, Satan was in that serpent. In some manner, speaking through him. Jesus seems to teach that Satan once spoke through a man in Peter, uh, in Peter, or before Peter, Matthew 16, 23. So it is not without some type of parallel. But certainly in the Word of God, it is very unusual. And the Bible doesn't tell us how Satan did it. It is possible that we should also see an indication of Satan's involvement in a prophecy that's given in Genesis. Now, you've been studying AIG. This is certainly given to you, right? Genesis 3, 15, we call it the proto... It's actually euangelion, but we call it the proto-evangelium. What does that mean? Well, the enmity between the seed of woman... And the seed of the serpent is often seen as a struggle between Christ and who, Satan. We also see this in Romans chapter sixteen, verse twenty. So, thus, isn't it glorious to look at the pages of Scripture after the fall of man into sin, and look at Genesis three fifteen and see that God was already, already had a plan, already had into into, into motion uh, as far as redeeming mankind. Okay, number three, the temptation. There are several interesting points about the temptation. First, sometimes people wonder why the serpent approached Eve. Why the woman? Well, there's speculation. One, she was weaker than the man. Don't think that that has anything to do with it. I hope you understand that I believe in full equality of personhood between a man and a woman. But I believe they're strictly given by God. foundational principles of a different function between a man and a woman. Not only true in the church, but also true in the home, right? There's something different from a male and female more than just biological as well. There's some obvious things biologically, right? But even so more than that, God had a reason for it. So some speculate. Uh, Some speculate that it's in the mode of her usurping The man's authority. These are all speculative things. But make no mistake about it. According to Genesis 3, Adam was actually with Eve and should have been able to warn her. Why? Who was the command given to first? Adam. And and we have no recorded place in the Bible where God turns around and tells the woman who actually was supposed to tell the woman. Hello? Yes. I'm going to start over, right? Adam was responsible as the leader to instruct his wife. But, nothing is, but he said nothing and readily uh, sh- shared in her sin, offering no resistance. So the temptation, first, some wonder why the serpent approached Eve. We, we don't know for sure, other than the fact, I would say this. He didn't go to the head, he went to the helper. And probably theologically, there's a reason for that, because when you get to 1 Timothy And you understand that she was deceived, and not the man, but he sinned willingly. Furthermore, when God lays the blame on the human race for sin, He doesn't place it first on the woman. He places it every time on Adam. Why is that important? Because God made Adam the leader. And when sin entered into this world, even though the woman sinned first, it says, by one man's sin, Adam. So... Second, and more important, many have noticed the steps in the tempter's approach. First, he tested Eve's knowledge of God's Word, and at the same time tried to paint God as unreasonable and restrictive and outrageous. This is the way the enemy works, right? There are, of course, some problems with Eve's response. If you're over in Genesis, the emphasis in Genesis 2.17 is on their freedom to eat from all the trees except one. God's restriction was not onerous in the least. Just because it was a restriction doesn't mean that God was trying to hold out on them, of course. Also, too, God's command not to eat from the tree. Eve added that they were not even supposed to touch it. And she also omitted the emphasis on the certainty of death as a result of eating the forbidden fruit. So whether this imprecision in Eve's understanding is significant or not, we're not told. Nor is there any hint as to whether her misunderstanding was due to her negligence or to Adam's poor teaching. Could have been either one of them. For the commandment was given again to Adam before it was given to Eve. Adam was created first and was reminded of that. At any rate, she stayed and debated when Adam and Eve both should have fled and not stayed and debated the next step in the temptation was a direct challenge to the authority and the character of our God what did the serpent say has God really said so it was God lied and he's lying to you maliciously to keep you from something good Uh. God is painted as the enemy Satan's painted as a friend boy is that a lot like our world today Uh, He masquerades as an angel of light, of course. So Satan's challenge does raise a valid question. Why did God give them the restriction to begin with? Why did he even create such a tree if he did not want them to partake of that tree? Has anybody ever thought about that other than me? Right? Have you thought about that? I have no idea. Let's move on. Now, I think the answer lies in the type of relationship that God desires with human beings, right? A relationship of trust. You're not holding out on me. You know all things right, right? You know exactly what I need. Uh, the scripture says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and called according to his purpose. So, a relationship of trust and obedience requires there be something that calls trust, requires that there is something that calls trust into question. Something that calls for our obedience, and Satan was calling for Eve to act autonomously. That sound like the U.S. rather than obediently, to believe the worst of God, rather than to believe that God is always good. So the presence of temptation was inevitable, given the type of intimate relationship that God wanted to establish. It was for our good. And even though the fall is there and the disaster, uh, disastrous consequences, God used it in a marvelous way to magnify a work of redemption, to create for himself a people of his own that would have a deep relationship with him. Right? Romans 9 echoes this same exact sentiment. I'm not going to read it because theologically, I want you to be able to keep your mind before you go out the door. All right? So... We also need to note how much and in what sense there was truth in Satan's claim. All right, let's ask this question. Did eating from the tree result in Eve and Adam's becoming more like God? Because if you eat of it, you're going to know good and evil. So therefore, did it cause them to, to become more like God? Well, Genesis 3.22 seems to say so. But I think we must hear the irony of the verse, right? Adam and Eve came to know good and evil, and that in that way they were like God, but the way they possessed that knowledge actually made them less like God. And we have to remember that God knows good and evil as a doctor knows a disease. Adam and Eve came to know good and evil as a sick person knows a disease. And that knowledge does not make one more like the doctor, but less. Good and evil. So as a result of the serpent's words, Eve experienced a threefold temptation. The fruit was good for food, it was pleasing to the eye, and it was desirous to make one wise. Uh, some people have said that this parallels First John 2:16. When you have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. I don't think they absolutely perfectly parallel those, but they're close, right? No question about that. As well as Matthew 4, when Jesus is tempted by the enemy. They also say there's the, a pattern there, and of course you can see somewhat. But I don't think either one of them completely fits. I think the lesson is more obvious. Sin is so appealing In so many ways. Would you all agree? Don't try to convince yourself otherwise. It's just that there are consequences. That are certainly not appealing. Once you go through those consequences of sin. So the point is to trust God in his goodness. No good thing will be denied. And if that doesn't work. Remember the consequences of our sin. Correct? So the Bible says Eve took an eight. Gave to Adam. Many centuries later. Jesus would say to his disciples, take and... You ever read your Bibles? Matthew, right? 26. Have you ever thought about that comparison? Take and eat it? Oh, plunge humanity into sin. And Jesus turns around at Matthew 26 and gives the Lord's Supper and says, take and... Are you scared to say it? Eat, right? Why? Because there is an eternalizing of a reversal of the symbol of the fall that was going to be reversed because of the cross, right? I don't think that's adding anything to the text. I think that's vitally important for us to think about. The way it was in the garden versus the way it was with Christ and His fulfillment. Now, fourth, let's talk about the results of the fall. I hate to ask this, but my watch has been gone for a long time. My wife hid it from me. No, that's not true. What time is it? 6.15. All right. The results of the fall. There are five. Guilt and shame. Some have drawn, I think uh, mistakenly, that the verse uh, 225, uh, they were ashamed. Naked and ashamed. You ever read that? Before, that was not the case. Before sin entered in. So does guilt and shame have to do inherently with the saying that sexuality is sinful and dirty? Well, absolutely not. Because Genesis 2.25 would say otherwise. I think their desire for physical covering reflects the need they now have to hide physically, to hide spiritually, and to hide emotionally. So the devil had promised your eyes are going to be open. But what they saw produced the first negative emotions in the Bible. Shame and guilt because of their sin before a holy and righteous God. Second, distortions in relationships. These are the results of the fall. Distortions in relationships. Genesis. uh, If we go through verses 8 through 19, we see a destructive uh, community. We see uh, that take long to read through Genesis to see that something, what we had in, in the garden is not what we have now, right? So there are distortions in relationships. Just think about this. How about God and human relationships? Well, there's distortions. How about the husband-wife relationship? Uh, he will seek to dominate you if he's not walking with Christ, Now, we see the flip side of the way that ought to look in Ephesians 5. Husbands, loving your wife as Christ loved the church. That's the redeemed relationship. But left to yourself without being redeemed and and letting God lead your family and being a family filled with the Spirit, then the husband will seek to treat the wife in a domineering uh, fashion. However, the wife will seek to take that leadership role uh, or not submit unto leadership what does it look like in the Ephesians? Stop bumping your wife, right? What does that look like in Ephesians? Submitting to your husbands as to the Lord. That's what the redeemed relationship looks like. But here in the garden, after the garden, after sin, we have a, a strained, destructive relationship between the husband and wife. Then we see the mother-child relationship. It wasn't supposed to hurt to have those babies. Aren't we reminded every single time of the fall? And I know you say, put the epidural in. And I say this, if you can reverse the curse, do it, right? But the fact is, having that baby wasn't supposed to hurt, but now it hurts, right? Some of you went, oh. you did have epidurals back in the day, right? Not, not exactly like what you have today, but distortions in relationships from walking with God. Think about this. Now his creatures are hiding in fear from him. In the place of love between a husband and wife, there is recrimination and there's passing the buck. It didn't take Adam long to say, Lord, that woman you gave me. It didn't take Eve long to say that serpent deceived me. There's the passing of the buck. She will now attempt to overturn God's order for marriage. And the husband himself will seek to dominate in that sense of being a dictator and an oppressor. Both man and woman will experience difficulty in their roles. Eve shared a role in dominion over creation, but now she was at enmity with a part of that order, according to the Bible. From being an occasion of joy, children became an occasion of pain as they first entered into the world. For the man, the environment that he worked in was no longer friendly. We can just thank Adam every time there's a thorn bush that sticks us. What do you call it around here? A locust bush, right? We can thank uh, Adam for that. It wasn't cooperative with him, it, it shared in the degradation caused by sin. Work will become painful toil. Mm. Well, these distortions are central, folks, to the result of the fall. They're offshoots to the fact that sin had entered into this world. Thus, restoration for those relationships should be central in the life and ministry of the people of God today. For you not to have a right relationship with someone in this church is phenomenally hypocritical after God restored your relationship with Him via the cross. You understand, uh, for us as uh, husbands not to be the husbands that we should be is hypocritical in light of the fact that we have a Heavenly Father who redeemed us, right? And we should say the same thing about a woman's response to her husband. All right. Uh, C. Let's see, where are we? Uh, Knowledge of good and evil still affects, as we mentioned above, Adam and Eve did gain this knowledge, but they now knew evil as participants. How about death? I'm going to move fast. Genesis 2, 17 implies that death will be immediate that very day. But, did Adam and Eve die physically that day? So there's something under the surface, right? So we're dealing with not only physical death as a result of sin. You know, every single time we go to a funeral, you've got to understand that, right? It's not that they immediately sinned at that moment the reason they died. But folks, there would be no death had there not been sin. Okay? So we see that, physical death. But in this capacity, the, their relationship with God died. So there's the there's the spiritual death. Access was denied. And God, here's another thing we could talk about theologically, God did not intend for us to eat and live forever in our present state. And that's why the access was denied. Remember from the tree of life, access denied. Why God well that would have been terrible if we ate of that and ended up in that state forever. But God had a a remedy. Revelation 22, 1 through 2, the way to the tree is opened in the future. And it's open for the redeemed. And its leaves cure all the pains and scars of this life. Man, I want some of that. I want to get to this tree, right? But it's for the redeemed. Revelation 22, 3 adds that the curse is now removed. Now it's safe and in the will of God to live forever. But it wasn't safe before. Right, So the cure for spiritual death is regeneration. Are y'all comfortable with that term? Are you? I I must be honest, as your pastor, I've got some hit back from that since I've been at this church uh, about using the term regeneration. Well, I just want you to get used to it. Because if you have been regenerated, you're not saved. Are y'all listening? Regeneration. It's a Bible word. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy. He saved us by the washing of... Don't be afraid to say it! Regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. So, here's a lesson. Spiritual death demands regeneration. Can't be made alive without regeneration. And then the cure for physical death resurrection. Aren't you looking forward to that one? But there is no cure for the second death according to the book of Revelation. E, the final result of the fall is the effect of the fall on the descendants of Adam and Eve which um, we're going to discuss that in the topic of original sin. You understand that that's key when you start talking about Catholicism and Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox and um, Certain groups among Presbyterian life, right, Philip? Whether it's Presbyterian USA, probably. They're going to have a different view. I would, I would say an unbiblical view of what original sin is. But that's important for us to think about. When we consider original sin, we're going to study that a little later. For now, we turn our attention to the rest of the Bible's teaching on sin. How about the nature of sin? We, I think we're going to have to... Uh, put on the brakes tonight in a few minutes and pick back up but there are some biblical terms for sin you know that virtually every religion in the world has a conception of what sin is y'all know that they do for the hindu sin is ignorance of the fact that this material world is an illusion right all matter is evil in their understanding and the cure is enlightenment for the buddhist i.e., you know Tiger Woods is a Buddhist. So once he went through all that he went through, he actually said, I need to go back to the disciplines my father taught me. Did y'all notice that? If you know what he believes, then you understand exactly what he's saying. But their belief is the cure is to train one's soul through meditation to desire nothing. So thus, when Tiger was talking about that, he would be saying, I don't need to desire these sexual promiscuity type things I need to be more disciplined and for any number of oriental religions sin is a violation of harmony with nature for the Muslim Islam Islamist sin is any lack of external conformity to the law of Allah but what is sin for a Christian we ought to approach the Christian conception of the nature of sin or we should in a number of ways some people that are skeptics say that sin is the only empirical, verifiable doctrine of Christianity, right? Because we definitely sin, and you see it, right? Uh, we can sadly learn a lot about sin from personal experience. But let's look at our primary source, which is the Bible. Uh, there, are three of the most, there are three prominent words for sin that are used kind of interchangeably in the Old and the New Testament, And we'll try to draw some conclusions. Let's look at a couple of these, and we'll uh, shut her down for the night. Biblical terms for sin. Again, um, let's limit ourselves to three, all of which are mentioned in one text in the Old Testament. That's Exodus 34, 6 through 7, a verse repeated many, many times in the Old Testament. Do you all know what three words for sin are given there? Does anybody know without looking? You should know these really. Sin, the one that really sounds bad, iniquity, and transgression. So the English is sin, iniquity, transgression. Uh, Hebrew scholar, can you help me tonight? Okay. Chata is the way it would look in English, but that's not the Hebrew. Uh, that would be sin. Iniquity is avan or avail, and pasha, maybe you know. You know the Hebrew translations of those? Yeah. He's got it. I don't have the k that they have, even though I took a year of Hebrew. You understand? But transgression would be that one. In the Greek, it is harmatia. Thus, when we study the doctrine of sin, it is called the doctrine of harmatology. Or harmatology meaning the study of sin. And then we have eidikia for iniquity, which is... Closely akin to the Akia of righteousness, right? Which is the remedy for sin. And then parabasis would be transgression. The central idea of sin, Chata harmatia, is to miss the mark of iniquity. It is an act and consequence. And transgression is to cross a forbidden line or to rebel. Uh, harmatia, we often talk about shooting a bow, right? And missing the mark, uh, we, we miss the mark, fall short. Uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sin. Harmatia would be the word used there. So, sin. These are the most frequent and most general words for sin in the Bible. The first words used for sin in both Testaments, which is Genesis 4.7 and Matthew one twenty one, both mean the same thing, and that would be to miss the mark. In the Old Testament, that word for sin was used in a secular sense to refer to certain marksmen in the tribe of Benjamin who could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. Well, I'd like to be able to do that. David, by the way, was pretty good at slinging a stone, right? But normally this word was used in a spiritual sense to refer to missing the mark of the will of God, which reflects God's nature and is embodied in God's law, right, from what we get from the text. Uh, So we missed the mark for two reasons. Number one, we try but miss because the power of sin and the weakness of our fallen nature. This is the sense of sin in Matthew 26, 41, Romans 7, 17. But as Charles Ryder Smith notes in his study of sin, the Bible doctrine of sin and of the ways of God with sinners, the great majority of the time we miss God's mark because we are not aiming at the mark, right? Sometimes we miss it, and most of the time we're not actually aiming at the mark at all. We reject God's goal. Isn't that our sinful nature? We reject God's purpose and we shoot at another goal. Might I say our children are real good about that? We say here's the purpose, here's the goal, here's what you ought to do and our kids say ain't doing it. Right? I'm gonna go after my purpose, my goal, Uh, I'm gonna do it my way and that's in all of us actually. So the problem with sin is not basically weakness But perverseness, right? We are perverse. Let's just be honest. And we're at enmity toward God, and we are at enmity with His purpose. This is especially true for those who are lost. The greatest problem is not that we want to obey God's law. Here's the deal. We can't obey God's law. The Bible says the natural man cannot discern the things of God. A lost person in that state, it's not that they want to obey and can't, uh, or want to obey and miss them. They absolutely can't obey the law of God. Uh, it is not that she or he cannot obey God's law because she doesn't want to. It's because we are actually at enmity with God. Romans 8 7. All right. Let's uh, put the brakes on tonight and let's find out where we got to on here. Biblical terms of sin. So we're, we're doing good. The essence of sin, the sources of sin. Uh, any questions tonight? Does everybody pretty much know what sin is so far? Hope you found it helpful. Some of you kids are like, man, I'm just ready to go home. I'm tired of all this sin stuff. Well, I promise you it'll come back up when you get home. <laughs> Want it? All right. Any questions tonight? that you may have, something stuck in your mind, heart, you'd like to ask a question. Please, if you want to see how this ends up, you need to come back on Sunday nights. We'll pick up next week and plow through. And I really want you to be here when we talk about original sin and what does that mean for us and our predicament as human beings. No questions? Everybody good? I can't believe Miss Mary's back there. She hadn't asked a question. Ah! (laughs) Go ahead. Sure. No, I I think primarily the restriction alone was enough to entice... if, If she's sitting there trying to decide whether God is holding out on her or not, and the enemy is feeding her the lie that, well, you'll have the knowledge of good and evil. God's holding out on you. Uh, He's restricting you. Uh, In their state that God created them in, uh, that was enough for her to begin to question God and question if God was holding out on her and Adam and thus led her to sin. Which, by the way, when we flesh this all the way out, obviously, we have to define, and we will do this, how do you even define, bring all the summaries of sin and bring it into one definition? Well, we're going to do that. I'm not going to tell you tonight, okay? You've got to come back. Okay? Yes, ma'am? Yes, because when David begins to contemplate his sin... Although he, the consequences obviously were borne out with Bathsheba and Uriah. And uh, the scripture says the, the sword never left David's family. Just think about the, the consequences. But when David begins to contemplate sin, he says, against the only have I sinned. So he said, this is an issue I've sinned against God. In other words, if God's not the standard, then there is no sin. Right? We've got to see it that way. And that's why, uh, <laughs> uh, why it's going to be important for us to get to understand salvation and how that plays out in our own mind and heart when it comes to being redeemed and saved. It's important that you have the correct view of what sin is. If you're basically good, then you don't need Jesus. Right? And our world basically says that. It, you are innately, basically good. That is not true. That is not what the Bible says teaches. Okay. Yes, sir. Who? I don't even want to think about that, y'all. Uh, yeah, we can certainly address some of those. We, we had that discussion in the house the other day about fire. What does that actually mean? Well, ultimately, we'd have to say that the worst part about hell is ultimate separation from God. Uh, how is that going to be manifested? Is it figurative to burn? I don't know, folks, but I don't want to find out. The reality is to burn forever uh, and, and, and not have that uh, thirst quenched or to not have a remedy. You know, we, we can look at the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, there's there's, a, there's a understanding. Uh, go and tell my brothers, you know, uh, so that he have to, they don't have to come to this awful place. So obviously, yes, we will, uh, we'll do that just for you. All right. Any others? Do you feel that Eve sinned before she ate the fruit when she added to God's word? Oh, that's a good point. I don't think the Bible indicates uh, either way. Uh, She took the fruit and ate it, and thus, you know, that's when the Scripture picks up. Uh, But we that's something to think about, right? Because in your thoughts, uh, in your mind, uh, not trusting God. Um, I would tend to believe that the restriction, which again was not supposed to be restrictive in the sense of God holding out, uh, when she actually broke that restriction is when she sinned. Robust theology. You are becoming budding theologues here at the church, right? All right, any others? Any kids got a question? I figure you want to say, can I get away with sin? Nah, you can't, right? Take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and it'll always cost you more than you're willing to pay. I can guarantee that. All right. Well, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we want to thank you for uh, just trying to, Lord, to figure out the best way to convey this information. Lord, I don't want it to be, hard to understand. That's not the goal. But Lord, let's be honest. Uh, some things that are important to learn are often difficult to learn. We, we have to have it put before us multiple times, and we have to listen to your word. And, and Father, we want to thank you most of all tonight that you made a provision that we could be forgiven of our sin. And Lord, uh, we're so blessed and thankful for that as we'll look into Romans 5 and, and just see the event, the Christ event, and uh, redemption and forgiveness. And uh, wherein by one man's sin, sin entered into this world. How much more so is our redemption accomplished through Jesus Christ? That last Adam, as it says in Corinthians. And we thank you for him. We thank you for Jesus. And Lord, uh, we ask that as believers, you would give us a militant attitude towards sin. Father, we didn't get to this point, but what are we supposed to do in a world uh, that is ravaged by sin? And Lord, what we're supposed to do as a church is to come out from among the world and be separate. That means the church should live in such a way that we hate sin. We hate anything that stands against your holiness. And therefore, Father, help us as a church to take that seriously, that we are going to walk in holiness that we're going to do the best we possibly can uh, to honor you in life. And uh, we're going to do our best, Father, with your help to uh, refrain from sin. Lord, we're reminded in the Word of God that we are to be putting on and putting off, putting off the old, putting on the new because of our position in you. And, Father, help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.